Okay, guys, we're going to look at the first five chapters of Joshua today. Now, remember, we're kind of doing a survey, so we're not going to get into detailed look. We're not going to read the passage because we don't have that much time. But we're going to look at different things along the way so you can understand what's going on. Joshua is one of the his first historical book. It deals with the whole issue of the conquest, the conquest of them taking Canaan. Remember when we studied the first five books, they were anticipating going into Canaan. Now they're going to take Canaan. So we're going to take a look at this and hopefully glean some information for ourselves as we go along. So the first thing we want to look at, chapter 1 deals with the whole issue of the commissioning of Joshua. This is again the Lord designating Joshua as the leader, and we'll see a few things here. So first of all, since Moses has died, the Lord commanded Israel to enter and take the land. I, as I was writing this lesson, I thought that was interesting. Could First of all, remember when we went through the five books, was Moses allowed to enter into the promised land? No. Okay. Second thing, why wasn't he allowed to enter into the promised land? Yeah, he hit the stone twice when he was told to speak to it. Okay. Now, I thought about this. Okay, so there they are in the land of the Amorites, and they've got to wait for so-and-so to die. I mean, think about that. They've got to wait for Moses to die before they can go on over into the land. Isn't that interesting? You know, they've got to wait for Moses, and of course, the transition of power from Moses to Joshua. Okay? But now that Moses is dead... The way is clear for them to enter into the land, right? The way is clear, all right? So, the Lord called them to be strong and courageous since no one will stand before them. Be strong and courageous. Don't be scared. Do what I'm telling you to do because nobody's going to stand against you. Now, that doesn't mean that nobody's going to oppose them. That basically means there's not going to be any victory on their part. You're going to take this land, okay? You're going to take this land. So he calls them to observe the law that he gave to them through Moses. So again, he's reminding them, I think this is interesting, keep my word. Keep my word. Do what I'm telling you to do. The law I gave you, you will keep it. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to give you the land. You keep my word. Okay? You keep my word. Now, Joshua, after he gets the word from the Lord, he commands the people to prepare themselves. Okay? So he commanded the people to prepare themselves to cross the land in three days. All right? So get, the, get ready. We're going to cross the land in three days. In fact, he tells the eastern tribes, remember, there were uh, two and a half of the tribes were on the other side of Jordan. They wanted that plain area because they had cattle and so forth. He tells them, get ready. You're going to fulfill your vow here. Okay, so the eastern tribes to fulfill their commitment to Moses to aid their brothers in taking the land. All right? So they made a commitment to Moses. Yes, we'll go over and help our brothers take the land so long as we get to keep this property. And of course, Moses allowed them to do that. 
Okay? And they made a vow and they were to do that. Now, the people responded. Now, here's how the people responded when Joshua gives these commands. It's very interesting. The people responded that they will obey Joshua just as they obeyed Moses. So basically, the people are saying, whatever you say will be like Moses speaking to us. We'll do exactly what you say. Okay? You are the leader. So they're affirming his leadership. And this is what else they say. Those who rebel against the command of Joshua will be killed. Wow, that's pretty brutal, isn't it? I mean, they're not, not taking any kind of dissent here. You're the main guy. You're leading us. Anybody who dissents against you, they're dead. Okay? That's pretty much an affirmation there of his leadership. So we see uh, the commissioning of Joshua. Now we come to chapter 2. Now chapter 2 will be very familiar to you because chapter 2 has to do with the spies being sent to Jericho. Now how many of you remember that story? You were either in child in Sunday school, you've either heard messages about it, everybody's heard about the two spies, and the harlot or the prostitute named what? What's her name? Rahab, yes, okay. So let's take a look here. Joshua sent two spies to view the land and to bring back a report. Now this is a military strategy, you just don't go blind into a situation. You want to know what you're facing, you want to know what the situation is, so you send out two spies to spy out the land, and specifically to spy out Jericho, because that's the first place they're going. Now, I'm just going to be honest with you, just so you know, we're not talking about attacking at a target that's hundreds of miles away, from the point that they will cross over into Canaan, it's only a few miles to Jericho. It's only a few miles. So picture it like you're camping out in Kerwinsville and you're going to attack Clearfield and wipe it out. That's about the distance there. Okay? That's the distance. Now, the spies lodged in the household of Rahab the harlot. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? They're staying in the household, the house of a prostitute. Why would that make sense? Think about that. It's very obvious. Well, I, okay, we're not asking you to say things you can't say, okay? I, I heard a sermon that said actually her house was more or less like a hotel. Probably, yes. So yeah, probably was a place where people were known to come and go, especially strangers, okay? It's the house of a prostitute, so strange men would be known to come and go into a house of prostitution. Do you understand? Into a house of prostitution. So they lodged there. We know that. Rahab hid the spies from the king of Jericho and claimed that they had departed. So first of all, the king finds out, the king of Jericho finds out, hey, there's two guys. They kind of look like Jews, Hebrews. And they're, they're staying at Rahab's house. So, of course, he sends men. The king didn't go over himself. He sends men to find out what's going on who are they? Where are they? And she decides, this is amazing, because she's from these people. She's, fr she's a Canaanite woman. From the city of Jericho, she decides to help them out. So she hides them on the roof of 
where she, of the, her house covers them and then basically lies to the officials, the soldiers or whoever came and said that they had departed and left and of course they sent soldiers out after him going nowhere. You know what I'm saying? Nowhere. I think that's amazing. Here's what's even more amazing. You need to read chapter 2 for yourself. Okay? It's what Rahab said to them. Before Rahab helped the spies escape, escape, she provided information to them. So it isn't just that she helped protect them. She kind of gave them the bigger picture of what's going on. Okay? She kind of gave them the bigger picture of what's going on. And so here's what she told them. She shared that the city and the land were terrified of Israel and God. Right off the bat, she's just going to say, we're scared of you. We're afraid. And we're afraid of your God. Okay? We're afraid of your God. So they're terrified. The city of Jericho is terrified. The Canaanites are terrified because they had heard the reports of what the Lord had done to Egypt and the Amorite kings. All right, now stop for a moment. Let's let's have an imaginary world for a moment, okay? Okay, let's we're in the United States though, okay? Just think we're in the United States. And let's say there's some country, well, you know, some force that's coming against us, and you just found out that this force that's coming against us wiped out the Russians and the Chinese without even breaking a sweat. And now they're coming for us. Would you be nervous? You'd be terrified. Because they wiped out the Russians and the Chinese, right? And they have big armies. Think about how the Canaanites are feeling. Because number one, they hear, first of all, what God did to the Egyptians. Now, to understand what that means is, is in that time frame, the Egyptians were the superpower of the world. They were the biggest army. In fact, the Egyptians had been known in history, we know this, to have invaded Israel several times. To have even stationed forces in Israel at some point. So you hear now that the Israelites and their God wiped out, destroyed their army in the, De the Red Sea. Do, do, do you understand what I'm saying? Then you hear that the, the Israelites are going at, right across the river in the land of the Amorites. They came in and they've wiped out everybody in specifically two kings, Og and Shion. Now, are you going to be nervous? Are you going to be terrified? You're going to be afraid for yourself, right? Now, you're going to be cautious. You know what I'm saying? It's not like you're giving up because that's what the king's doing. Where are those guys? But she's letting them know the situation there. She's letting them know this is what's going on. So here's what Rahab does. This is amazing. She begged the spies to promise that she and her family would be spared. She's basically saying, I know you're going to come in, you're going to wipe everybody out, but can you spare me and my family? She already knows what's coming. 
The Israelites are going to come in. They're going to wipe out Jericho. And they did. Wipe it out. We're going to see that next week. Can you spare my family? I saved you. I protected you. Can you make a promise to me? So the spies made a promise and told her to bind a scarlet cord to the window. She let them out through the window, through the wall, and they said, obviously her house must have been right up against the wall. Okay? So they said, you tie a scarlet cord out that same window, we know that that's where you are, you'll be spared. But if that cord isn't there, we're absolved of our oath. We're absolved of our oath. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. For her to tie that scarlet cord in the window, would you say that's an act of faith? Yeah, of course. Yeah, you're, you're, that's an act of faith that they're going to spare you. Okay? That's an act of faith that they're going to spare you. Now, all right, so you we're assuming that the next chapter is, let's go take them. Right? Let's go take them. Actually, that's not what the next chapter is. There's still some stuff that Israel's got to do, okay? Still got some things that Israel has to do to get ready to enter the land, all right? Get ready to enter the land. First of all, the spies told Joshua and reported that the Lord had delivered the land into their hands. They go back and they say, Joshua, it's going to be a cakewalk. They're afraid. God has given them to us, okay? God has given them to us. All right, now here's what I want you to see. Israel crossed over on dry land as they entered Canaan. Now when you get to chapter 3, chapter 3 is totally devoted to the account of them crossing the Jordan. Now I want you to figure this out. A million people crossing the Jordan. All right, and the time that they believed that this took place was in the flood stage of the river. Okay, so you kind of like know, you guys know, if you live here in Kerbinsville, you know how the river flows here. In the spring, would you say the, the water's high here in the spring in Kerbinsville? When you get to the end of August, you could drive out onto the riverbed, right? You've seen some folks do that too, right? There's a, this was probably the spring, all right? And they entered in. They have the ark. The ark proceeds all of Israel. They're marching in formation. Soon as the priests touch the river bank with their feet, guess what happens? The waters part. Now when else did that happen? When they left Egypt, right? Crossed over into the wilderness. Same thing now. Waters part. The priests are holding the ark in the middle of the riverbed, while all of Israel passes over. All of Israel passes over. That's got to be an amazing sight, isn't it? Amazing sight. Now, I want you to notice, Israel crossed over on dry land as they entered Canaan. All right, so now, here's what happens. They do something with memorial stones. Chapter 4 is devoted to the whole issue of memorial stones. Now this, you're like, why a whole chapter on this? Well, I want you to understand, this is very true even to this day with the Jews. Jews constantly have things that remind them of how God worked. Do you understand? They remind them. So they have the Passover. 
And here we have in this situation the reminder of how they crossed over into the land to take it. So while the priests are there, okay, in the middle of the river, the waters are parted, Joshua commands that they take 12 stones from in the midst of the riverbed and bring them out, out among them to where they camp that evening to set up a pile of stones. And that pile of stones was to be a memorial to all of Israel from that day on. What are these stones? These are the stones when, what? Israel crossed over on dry land. It's a reminder of what God had done. Okay? Because people have to be reminded, don't they? Constantly have to be reminded. All right? So the stones were to be a memorial to all Israel that crossed the Jordan on dry land. All right? Then Joshua commanded 12 stones from the river to be placed in a pile in the river. So to take 12 stones, I don't know why the Lord told them to do this, like how are they going to see this, but to take 12 stones and put them in a pile right where the priests were holding the ark. So that when they walked out of there, the waters would return to normal, but the stones would be there. Okay? The stones would be there. So this is a memorial. Now we get to the issue of, this is our final section. This is where we're going to spend a little bit of time. Uh, this is the whole issue of the consecration of Israel. All right, so now they've crossed the land. Before they go to war, they got to consecrate themselves. They got to separate themselves to the Lord. And they do this several different ways. The one, the first one is significant, okay? They have to be circumcised. Now, does anybody find that odd here that they have to be circumcised? Because they're Jews. When do Jews normally get circumcised? Jewish males normally get circumcised. The eighth day after their birth, right? So here you have a whole nation of men that have to be circumcised. Yeah, we're going to see that here. Joshua circumcised the men because the children of the wandering were not circumcised. All right, so remember, the generation that crossed into the wilderness, they're all dead now, right? Except for two people, Joshua and Caleb. So their children who were born in that 40 years, all the males who were born in the wilderness wandering, I don't know why, it doesn't tell us why, but they were not circumcised during the wanderings. Okay? Now, there's probably some medical reason or whatever. I don't understand. But they weren't circumcised then. Now, though, they get ready to cross over. They're into Canaan now. They just crossed the river. They're camping. And now every male has to be circumcised. Wow. Now, here's the thing. Uh, you know, I've had, Lori and I have little, have boys, and we had them circumcised when they were babies. Healing process for a baby, there's a healing process, but it doesn't take a long time. Grown men, it takes a while to heal from that, okay? And it's a known fact. In fact, we know from Genesis, remember, when somebody wanted to marry one of the daughters of Jacob, from the Canaanites, and they were, of course, wanting to avenge the fact that she had been raped by that 
guy who wanted to marry her. They said, oh, you have to be circumcised. And so while everybody was circumcised and laid up, the sons of Jacob went in and what? Wiped them out. All right, so this is, I mean, they're getting ready to go in and do war. And then all the men have to be circumcised now. So they're going to be laid up for what? A while to heal. Okay? But that doesn't matter. They have to do it. Why do they have to do it? Because it's a sign of the covenant. It's a sign of the promise. What promise? The promise to take the land. Now remember, listen, is this a serious thing with God? Yeah, you better believe it is. How do we know that? Well, remember when Moses was sent to uh, go and bring Israel out of Egypt? On his way to there, the angel of the Lord wants to kill him. And that's like, wow, what's going on here? Until Moses, what? Uh, you know, until his wife circumcised his son. Then the attack stopped. It's a serious thing to God that they take the sign of the covenant. All right? Now, while Israel was camped at Gilgal, they celebrated the Passover. Now, that's amazing, too. When was the first time they celebrated the Passover, folks? That a day before they fled. That's right, Art. The day before they fled. Remember, they were supposed to celebrate the Passover and be ready to leave because that night of the Passover, what happened in Egypt? All the firstborn of Egypt were what? Killed. And the next day, the Egyptians said, get out of here. And so they fled. So listen to this. Forty years later, they cross over the Jordan. Guess what they're celebrating? Forty years later. Passover. Forty years. Wow, isn't that amazing? Forty years. Forty years, they're celebrating the Passover in the Promised Land. Okay? In the Promised Land. They also, Israel ate of the produce of the land on the day after the Passover. So on the next day after the Passover, guess what they're eating on? Stuff from the land. They're eating the food from the land. You know what I'm saying? They're eating the food from the land. Now why is that significant? Of course they would do that, George. Well, here's why it's significant. After they had eaten the produce of the land the manna ceased to be provided. Remember now, for 40 years, every morning, six days a week, they were to what? Gather the bread of God for their food. For their food. And so now that they're in the land and eating the food of the land, do they need manna anymore? No, they don't need manna anymore. God no longer provides for them manna. Isn't that amazing? That's what's going on here. Isn't that amazing? Okay? Now, there are three interesting verses that we're going to spend a little bit of time on. And they have to do with a man that Joshua saw outside of Jericho. Let me read you these verses. Okay? It's in chapter 5, verse 13 through the end of the chapter. Okay? This is pretty significant. We don't talk about this much, but I think we should. And it came to pass that when Joshua was by Jericho, 
Then he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or are you for our adversaries? And he said, this is the man speaking, No, but as the commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? Then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take your sandal off your foot, for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. And that's all it says. This is an amazing three verses, so let's talk about them, okay? Because this isn't just him meeting anybody, okay? This is right before they go take the land, and it puts everything in perspective. I'm going to be honest with you folks, it's going to put everything in perspective for you if you're willing to let it, okay? Here's what's going on. First of all, so when they were near Jericho, Joshua saw a man with a sword drawn. All right, so he sees a man, what appears to be a man, with a sword drawn. Joshua asked whose side the man was on. Now, that's natural, wouldn't you? If you're seeing a dude there, you're, and you're a warrior, I mean, he's the captain, I mean, he's the leader of, of Israel, they're getting ready to take Jericho. You see a guy, he's got a sword drawn, you're going to be like, whose side are you on? Natural question, right? The man says very clearly here that he's not on any side. Okay? Man stated that he was on no side and that he was the captain of the army of the Lord. All right, now, when you first read that, you're like, huh? You're not on any side? You're telling them to go take the land. Aren't you on their side? Isn't that right? Wouldn't you think that? I mean, you're, you're representing the Lord and you're telling you're on nobody's side, but these are the guys who are on your side. They're going to take the land. You should be on their side, right? No, he says, no. I'm on nobody's side. Wow, what's the significance of that? There's a significance here that we need to grasp. What's the significance? God says, I'm on nobody's side. You're not thinking it through. What's... It's not a test, but that's good, though, Dave. Go ahead. Well, yeah, that's good, Brian. Let's expand it a little bit. The issue isn't, is, is, our, is God on our side? That's not the issue. That's how we normally talk. God's on our side, right? That's the issue. He's saying to Joshua, Joshua's saying, what side are you on? And he's saying, I'm on nobody's side. I'm God. Listen, he's God. How do you know that? Read the passage very clearly. Several things happen in this passage that are very similar to what happened to Moses when he saw the burning bush. What are they? Take off your sandals. Because the place you're standing is what? Why would it be holy? Because of who was there. God. Do you understand? The angel of the captain of the captain of the army of the Lord, the angel of the Lord, who would this be? God. I specifically believe it is a Jesus, a pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus. Do you understand? So here's God saying, I'm on nobody's side. 
Wow, that would freak you out. But the issue isn't, is God on our side? The issue is, are you on God's side? That's really what the issue is. Now you say, George, what does that have to do with us? Folks, it's got a whole lot to do with us because in this climate that we're living in, everybody wants to say that God's on their side. Everybody. I mean, I hear everybody. No matter what party, I hear God's on our side. Nobody's, listen, the issue isn't if God's on your side. The issue is, are you on God's side? That's really what the issue is. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's really what the issue is. So here's what Joshua does. He falls on his face as commanded, as he was commanded to remove his sandals in the presence of God. He took off his sandals. He fell on his face. Now, here's what I want you to see. This is just a typical reaction. When people see the actual representation of God, how do they respond? High five! Good to see you! They all fall on their face. And some some of it, the text says, they fall on their face like dead. They're terrified. You know what I'm saying? Some of it says they fall asleep. What does that mean? They pass out. You know what I'm saying? Because of the presence of God. All right, now here, so the man stated he was a captain, so Joshua fell on his face in the presence of God. So that is a significant passage. And that kind of puts it all in perspective. It's not an issue of, is God on your side? The question is, is are you on God's side? All right, now next week, we're going to look at how they take the land. Now, we may spend a couple of weeks here because there's three campaigns. There's a campaign into the central part of Israel. There's a campaign to the southern part of Israel. That's where Caleb wants that mountain, okay? And then there's a campaign to the north. So we may spend a couple of weeks there. So I can't see that we would take it all in one week, because especially with the central campaign, we've got the fall of Jericho, but we also have the defeat at Ai. 